This is a Dubai Eye 103.8 podcast. Hey, you're listening to the Bite Size Business Breakfast. Everything we have been up to Friday, February the 17th, uh, including a surprise interruption of, to the show of a bit of IPO news. Ad not guess is the first cab off the rank, the first horse out the gates this year, the first IPO of 2023 to be announced. So we've been speaking to one of the men involved in it, Andrew Tarbuck, partner and head of capital markets at the law firm Altamimi & Co., about what it could mean for retail investors. Speaking of energy, we have been looking at the cut that is to come from Russia. Half a million barrels is what they're going to be cutting from supply from March. Christoph Ruhl is the senior research scholar for the Centre on Global Energy Policy at Columbia University. He's been telling us what it could mean for global supply and therefore prices. Speaking of supply and prices, Radisson is to open up a lot more hotel rooms. Tom's been speaking to Ali Milkey, who's the Vice President of Development for this wider region at Radisson. And a survey that got us all talking from Tiger Recruitment, uh, the idea that to cope with the rising cost of living across the region, employees are going to potentially walk if they don't see more pay. Zara Clark is head of the MENA region for Tiger Recruitment. We are looking at a bit of breaking news this morning. Adnock to float around 4% of the shares of its gas subsidiary. Uh, Andrew Tarbuck, partner and head of capital markets at Altamimi & Co. has been working on the Adnock gas flotation. He joins us now. Andrew, good morning. Thanks for joining me. Hello, Brandy. How are you? And hi, Tom. Morning. Uh, How are you, more likely? I take it it was a bit of a late night getting this out the door. (laughs) Yeah, there's been a few late nights on this deal, but um, you know the the, the Adnoc team and the advisors have uh, done a great job to get us there um, for ITF this morning. So uh, yeah, it's um, it's it's been a, a, a quick journey, but a good one, and um, it's we're just delighted to to make the announcement this morning. So talk us through some of the the numbers that investors need to be mindful of this morning. We're looking at about four percent of the uh, the shares. Um, what do we need to know for the, the retail tranche particularly, since that's going to be the majority of our listenership this morning? <laughs> I love that. There's, there's always a, a focus on the retail, um, which, as you rightly say, that's, that's pretty much most of the listeners um, will be involved. So um, in terms of obviously the, uh, the outright side, I mean, 4% does not sound like a, a massive percentage of the total issued share capital, but it, it's actually a lot of shares. Um, when you read the prospectus, which has been published this morning, uh, and all the details are in there. So um, <laughs> in many respects, whatever I say is subject to that prospectus, which is, which is available now um, to retail investors, and they can have a look at it on um, the Adnock Gas microsite. So um, in terms of the availability and the number of shares, given the size of the, the transaction, um, you know, there should be uh, plenty of shares, hopefully, uh, for, for retail investors um, in, in the normal sort of uh, percentages that we would expect to be available um, to the person on the street. What, uh, and I know you can't tell me what we're expecting to see in terms of, of valuation, Andrew, and I noticed your little lawyer's caveat uh, in that last answer, <laughs> read the prospectus as well. We understand your position. What's the valuation going to be based on? What kind of things are going to be weighed up by the advisors? Um, well, obviously, you know, the, the underlying fundamentals of the business go into the valuation. And, you know, this is a, 
a business that's been ongoing uh, for some time for Adnoc, as you'd expect. Um, and really, this is quite a sort of revolutionary piece for, for Adnoc, where it's bringing together various uh, streams of its gas processing into one company. And that, that became actually operational on the 1st of January this year. Um, so you've got sort of three main elements, uh, the gas processing, LNG and industrial products all coming in um, to one company. So the, the challenge on valuation is, is how do you um, then value uh, separate businesses that are, that are being all put together? And the idea is that, you know, the valuation should be good in terms of the fact that, you know, you're, you're, you're finding synchronicities between those, those business lines. So um, the underlying financial performance is, is, is really key. Um, and again, you know, all of the financial information, there's actually, it's probably the most financial information I think I've ever seen disclosed uh, on an IPO before. Um, there's a lot of reading for, for those um, audit um, sort of fanatics out there. Uh, but in terms of valuation, you know, the, the, the price range will be announced um, before the opening of the offer, uh, which is next Thursday. So uh, there'll be a bit more chatter around the valuation, etc. Um, but then, of course, investor demand and you know, the, the actual pricing will depend on you know, investor appetite. And presumably we can see more shares released. We might see more shares released if we do see it oversubscribed. Oh, look, it's, it's something that's in the toolkit of the issuer and, uh, and the banks as its advisors. Um, but who knows? I mean, literally, that's uh, into the looking glass. Well, let's look at some of the key dates that retail investors do need to be mindful of for their tranche. Andrew, when do the books open to them? So Thursday next week is uh, <laughs> where you need to, to dust off the, uh, the, the, the banker balance account and see what's in there and... Uh, and then um, the subscription process, I mean, I think we've talked many times on the show and what the subscription process is, and, and it, it's getting so much better these days in terms of electronic applications, SMSs, et cetera. So um, all of this will come out on Thursday. So keep an eye on your phone. Um, I'm sure there'll be SMSs from your bank, um, uh, but also uh, that's when the sort of the, the, the actual opening of the offer takes place next Thursday. And there's, it's just, there's effectively a week to subscribe. The offer fully closes on, uh, I think it's Thursday, March 2nd. Um, so, you know, literally uh, retail investors know it's coming down the pike and, you know, be ready on Thursday. Why does Adnoc want retail investors? There's been a huge um, sort of focus on the, the retail tranche for all the IPOs that we've seen in Dubai and Abu Dhabi. Um, a lot being done to make sure, as you say, it's easy and comfortable for them to buy in. I've got 30 seconds left with you. Why are the, the average investor driving to work so important at the moment to these massive companies? Um, I think, look, it's, it's a, this is a national oil company and, you know, it's a very good thing as part of public policy to have the opportunity for, um, for, for retail uh, investors to get exposure, the possible exposure to, you know, what is a national oil giant. So, you know, it, it's part of a bigger, bigger tranching, though, because employees have got a chance, institutional investors have got a chance, and retail is extremely important as well to add not. So it, it, it's, a, it's, a, it's a combination of all three. 
Thank you so much for joining us this morning. We know you are exceptionally busy. Andrew Tarbuck, Partner and Head of Capital Markets at the law firm Al Tamimi. He's been involved in putting together um, this offering from Adnoc. Uh, it's going to be offering around 4% of the company, around 3 million shares um, in an IPO before a listing on the ADX. This is the Bite Size Business Breakfast, exclusively on DubaiEye1038.com. I am speaking to the European energy expert, speaking to us from Abu Dhabi this morning, Christoph Rule to have a look at those Russian cuts in the face of rising demand. Christoph is Senior Research Scholar at the Centre for Energy Policy, Global Energy Policy, at Columbia University. He joins us now. Christoph, good morning. Good morning to you. Tell me about this decision by Russia to announce a cut of half a million barrels a day. It's going to kick in in March. What's the strategy here? Yeah, so first, the strategy of the G7 and the countries and of the, of the European Union was to first embargo the imports of uh, crude oil into, into Europe and to impose a price cap on the sales of crude oil in other countries if Russia desires to use Russia, uh, European ships or uh, insurances or financial services, which they need to transport the crude oil. That was in December. And then to follow that up with a similar embargo for refined products uh, into the European Union, which kicked in the 1st of February. Russia has said all along that it will not accept the kind of restrictions implied by a price cap on either crude oil or its products, and has now, uh, for the first time, followed with an action by said uh, they cut crude oil exports by 500,000 barrels per day. That's not an exorbitant large uh, amount, and there are still people, they think that they had to cut it because it was difficult for them to find new markets and to redirect the flows of products and of crude oil. And so it's a temporary measure because Russia has more get more oil left than it can store. But there is, of course, the other view that this is the beginning of a strategy of trying to cut uh, oil exports and oil production in order to get prices up and to cause economic troubles for the sanctioning countries. All right, well, let's dig into that, starting with the redirection from Europe to Asia of that Russian energy. You mentioned there the difficulties in doing so. Does that suggest that sanctions and price caps on Russian energy are doing what those who've imposed them want them to do? Are they working? They have been uh, working when you look only at the results. The prices for crude oil have continued to come down. Uh, we don't see big price spikes for products right now after the, after the product sanctions have been kicked in in February. But the price caps which have been imposed were so moderate that they actually below the market price for Russian crude and for Russian products. So they have not been uh, imposing a further restriction on these sales. Uh, so the jury on that one is out. In, gen- in general, I would think if you have a price cap on, cap on top of a discount in the markets paid already, it's getting rather confusing because you're creating multiple prices and all that. But uh, the expectations of those who said introduction of a price cap will just lead to the opposite have also not been fulfilled. So prices have been continuing to moderately decline, indicating that globally there's more oil than there has been demanded. But uh, against that background, against the only way to understand Russian cuts is that they are in the long term at least looking at the possibility of, uh, of, of cutting supplies. One has to also add something because of the redirection of trade Russia's exports are now very concentrated. They sell crude oil basically into Asian markets, uh, mostly India, China, and Turkey. They will redirect uh, their their product exports into the Middle East and also into Asia. And so their customer base is very targeted, and it's not so difficult for them to then manipulate the price, say, for example, one product only, like diesel, their big export of diesel, in order to get global diesel prices up, which is the industrial fuel. 
uh, or even to manipulate crude oil export is easier because uh, they don't just disappear in the global market. First, they get targeted to India and China. So it's easier to target if the strategy is at some point to uh, cut supplies in order to get prices up. And I think for me, this is very simple. This is just a function of uh, more or less the military situation. I do think if Russia is cornered militarily, that is a weapon uh, which would hurt Western economies with certainty. And the current Russian government, I think, would uh, have not much qualms to deploy it. But is Europe coping okay without it? We've had the European Commission raising its forecast for GDP in Europe this year, saying it's going to avoid a recession in the bloc, largely because of lower energy prices. Kristalina Georgieva, speaking down the road from us here, just a couple of days ago, said similar, saying that Mother Nature had, had helped out with a milder winter. Is the European energy crisis over? You have to distinguish the European energy crisis was largely a crisis around natural gas. Natural gas imports into Europe, to be specific. And one lesson is that Russia had no qualms in cutting off the gas to Europe. Uh, then they were not successful because Europe could replace it with energy from other countries because, as you said, the winter was very mild and so on and so forth. And this was a smaller regular, regular, regional market in Europe. If we are now talking about the crude oil market, it's much, much larger, much more important for Russia and for the world. And it's a definitely global market. They tried it on the regional level. It didn't work out for a number of reasons, including the weather. That's an indicator that they may also try it on the global market, on the oil market, if there is no other way out left. You see, where I'm coming from is to see what, when you put yourself into the shoes of the Russian government and militarily they be cornered, what else could they do? There isn't much left uh, short of very much more dangerous things. Okay. Uh, and the crude oil market would be an obvious target. Okay, well, let's have a look at where we are with demand at the moment, if we are going to get that little bit of reduced supply. OPEC says that we're going to hit pre-pandemic levels for demand this year. The IEA has just upped its forecast significantly as well. Do we have enough, Christoph? Will we have enough for 2023? In principle, yes. There's no shortage of, there's no physical shortage of oil if, uh, if everybody sort of behaves normally. And what we have seen since the beginning of the war is that if there was anything, it was a trend downwards, not for volatility, but around a downward trend, expressing the fact that there is enough physical oil. So a lot of people saying oil goes to 200, 250 all the time, but that's more or less noise. But it's also a market where safety margins are very tight, inventories are very low, the strategic petroleum reserve has been depleted to some extent uh, during the time of the war. And uh, and and uh, OPEC is a... OPEC Plus is a small group pretty much in control because outside of it, the scope for increasing production is limited. So what this is to say that any kind of disruption will have immediate uh, and strong price consequences. The safety margins, the buffers, which we have are very low, even though in principle there's enough oil for the downward price trend to continue. So in other words, if there would be no wars, no problems, not even an OPEC Plus say, we would see oil prices much lower. If there are disruptions of whatever kind, there's a big uh, danger of a pr sudden price spike. Really and in the middle, And in the middle, we have Russia sort of sitting on the trigger uh, of what used to be a very rough shotgun, and which is now a very fine-tuned weapon. Uh, very quickly, Christoph, I've only got 30 seconds left with you. What does it all mean for prices? Where do you think prices are going? I think as long as there's no escalation in the Ukraine, uh, prices will continue in their corridor where they have been for long now, between, say, 80 and 90, with a bit of a downward drift. Uh, but if the situation in Ukraine escalates and Russia uses oil as a weapon, then prices will go up very fast, very high.
Well, thank you so much for joining us this morning. Christoph Rule is a senior research scholar at the Centre on Global Energy Policy at Columbia University, speaking to us from down the road in Abu Dhabi, Russia, um, announcing crude oil production to be cut by half a million barrels a day from March. Catch up on the business headlines with the Bite Size Business Breakfast. Let's talk hospitality because the sector is booming in the MENA region at the moment. But how are hotel groups planning uh, to uh, to deal with the supply and demand issues that are cropping up at the moment. Uh, Let's turn our attention to the Radisson Hotel Group, who've announced their outlook for 2023 as it looks towards robust expansion plans following the success in the Middle East region specifically. A lot of that success is down to the Vice President for Development for the Middle East, Pakistan, Greece and Cyprus for the Radisson Hotel Group. Ellie Milky, who's been kind enough to get up nice and early this morning over in Greece to speak to us live here in Dubai. Morning, Ellie. Good morning. Thank you for having me. No, thank you for joining us uh, this early in the morning. So we talked there or just hinted at the expansion plans. Maybe you can tell us more about them. Yeah, I mean, uh, we've, uh, we're have we really focused on the region. We plan on doubling our portfolio to 150 hotels and 30,000 rooms by 2030. Our uh, outlook for 2023 is over the next three years, actually, is to add 5,000 more keys in the region. Most of that growth is driven by Saudi Arabia. Most of that investment activity is in Saudi Arabia. But we're still seeing some growth in the United Arab Emirates, specifically Dubai, in Oman, in Bahrain, other parts of the region. So we're very excited. It's all driven by by our investors and by growing demand for the region. Obviously, 2022 was a positive market for uh, the Radisson Hotel Group, as it was for hospitality in general. Can we keep up those levels of interest, those levels of visitors into the region? I think we can. The region has always found a way to to stimulate demand. Um, Supply-driven demand has grown. Staycations have become attractive. Uh, New markets have opened up. Uh, people tend to forget that much of yes, much of this demand is, is is consumer demand coming to this region as it becomes more stable and more attractive. But a lot of this demand demand for more hotels is also driven by our investors who see the investment opportunity mm. because they see the gaps in the market, different segments, they see the gaps in different locations. And uh, there's a there's a huge lot of opportunity for both investors uh, and different types of uh, developers to grow in the region with us. Um, adding keys, adding rooms, adding hotels uh, means you need more tourists coming into the region to fill those rooms and use those keys. You mentioned and just hinted there earlier about the demand that we've seen already. Where's that demand coming from? Is the sort of demographic of demand changing? Yes, I mean, as the region becomes more attractive for mass tourism without in, in a positive sense of the word, we're, we're seeing that uh, more markets are opening up. Uh, European markets are visiting the region more than ever before. Saudi Arabia is opening up with e-visas, which was never possible before. The big numbers that Saudi Arabia is targeting um, will bring in more demand into Saudi Arabia itself. The opening up of visas in the UAE will bring in more people to live in the UAE, visit in the visit the UAE. As more markets in the GCC become more open and more welcoming, you'll start seeing more demand coming in. And now with the opening up of China after COVID, there's a huge going to be a huge influx from Asia coming into the Middle East again and into into the rest of the world. Ellie, let's talk about those properties in the pipeline that you mentioned there. 39 hotels, uh, 5,000 plus keys to be added to the portfolio this year. Uh, What sort of form will they come in? What sort of uh, stars are we talking about and types of properties? Very good question, because in the past, uh, 20 years ago, a lot of the development was in the five-star luxury category. Most of this is in the 
mid-scale and upscale categories, that's in the three and the four star uh, tier. Uh, a lot of it is branded service departments as well. Uh, a lot of it is under different brands that have not come to the region uh, until today, um, especially Saudi Arabia, where we just launched our Radis and Red in Diria Gate. A lot of it will be in the, uh, in the under different brands in different locations. A lot of it will be uh, resorts, which which we don't have too many of in Saudi Arabia today. We we opened a 400 key Radisson Beach resort on Palm Jumeirah just last uh, just last year. It's a four star resort. Less than keep, keep I mean keep this in mind. Less than 10 percent of all resorts in the in Dubai, for instance, are less than the five star tier. So 90 percent are five star luxury. There's a this is where the gap is, and this is where you'll be seeing more of our developments where the gap is with our investors. Talking of those of gaps as well, where where's the sort of the fine line between leisure and business travel? I mean, for for a long time we saw very strong business travel into the region. We're in the midst of uh, the the mice season here at the moment as well. That was sort of blended with leisure. How does a group like yours plan ahead for the demands in both leisure and business travel? A lot of our business hotels are providing leisure facilities. A lot of our leisure hotels are providing business facilities. A lot of uh, corporates who travel for business bring in their families. They want to be able to take a call. Um, they want to be able to go on holiday or, or extend their weekend. A lot of families who go on holiday would like to have a business call while during the day. So they would need business facilities uh, at the resort they're in. This is how we're blending it because this word, pleasure, that's that's come up over it, it came up after covid when people were allowed to travel and work and blend those two things together looking at your goals uh, as a group uh, ellie uh, the goal of having 100 properties in the region in the next three years 150 hotels resorts and service departments by 2030 are you confident you can make those goals yes absolutely i mean uh, when i joined in 2010 we only had five hotels in the uae today we have 20 we had five hotels in Saudi Arabia. Today, we have 45 hotels in Saudi Arabia. Uh, the numbers are, the, the opportunity is there. We work with investors. We, we, we know where the opportunities are. Our approach is entrepreneurial, and we see it coming. And if you look at the pipeline, only the next three years will bring, bring in 5,000 keys. But until 2030, we're going to add 10,000 more keys. So the numbers are there. The product is there. Our partners are there. And the trust is there from the industry for us to grow into different markets. It is an ever-changing market. We know that, Ellie. Uh, obviously, you're on top of that. Obviously, you and the team are agile and creative to deal with that. Uh, but we can't ignore the fact that there are inflationary pressures and problems around the world at the moment economically. Is that a concern? Is that keeping you up at night? Well, to some extent, yes. But a lot of people need to realise that the Middle East has created, especially the Middle East has created sort of a... Um, uh, somewhat of a bubble for itself because its economic dynamics, its economic uh, potential has been very different to, to, to Europe. Uh, if you take Saudi Arabia, for instance, economic and development activity is massive. It cannot compare to the inflationary pressures that are uh, and the high interest rates that, that, that they're feeling in Europe. So the Middle East region has now created itself its own uh, playground for the next one, two years, it may not feel the impact, the full impact of inflationary pressures and, and higher interest rates okay. uh, from, from Europe. We're hopeful. We have our solutions. We have our um, approach 
that will deal with opportunities differently. We've done it in the past and we'll continue to do it again. Ellie, got to leave it there. Thanks so much indeed for your time this morning. Ellie Milky, Vice President, Development Middle East, Pakistan, Greece and Cyprus for Radisson Hotel Group. Just the highlights. This is the Bite Size Business Breakfast. Where we are looking at that survey from Tiger Recruitment, looking at how we all feel about our pay at the moment uh, and what we might do if things don't get a little bit better. Let's dig into the numbers. Very pleased to have in the studio with me this morning the head of MENA operations from Tiger Recruitment, Zara Clark. Zara, good morning. Thanks for being here. Hi, good morning. Thank you for having me. So this is a report that at its heart is about pay and it's about inflation. What did people tell you about how they felt about the rising cost of living and how their wages were measuring up? So we've had a lot of candidates recently approach us about moving jobs because they um, have requested salary increases and unfortunately they have been declined and they see the only way that they can get a salary increase is to move roles. Um, We've also noticed that there's been a decline in benefits that candidates are now receiving within their roles where before we used to have very attractive packages, um, this is no longer the case. So let, let's look at the numbers and then let's look at what you're, uh, you're hearing. The quantitative and the qualitative, if you like. What do the numbers tell us about people's pay conversations with their bosses? Um, so probably within the last five years, we've seen some candidates only have one pay increase in that time. Um, we're expecting candidates to receive pay increases this year. Um, due to the cost of living um, and the pressures rising um, across the UAE. If I look at the the numbers, you've got nearly half of the the people who answered this survey, and this is wider than the UAE, isn't it? This is a regional survey, saying they brought up the subject with their their boss, and yet only about two-thirds of that got anywhere with it. What's going on? Um, I also think that companies are cutting back on costs and there is a reflection in that due to um, operational costs um, for businesses um, going up and rising. So this also has an impact on the salaries that the candidates are being paid. Is there a fear to have the, the pay discussion at the moment? Your survey talks about reluctance. Yes, I think so. People um, are obviously conscious of job security um, and they fear that um, if they go and have this conversation, could they be replaced with a cheaper candidate that would be keen, that may be unemployed, that would be keen for their role? Um, Job security is something that we've seen since COVID is is highly thought of. And yet, four in in ten nearly, uh, 37% say, if I can't get it where I'm working, I might walk. Is that just bravado in answering your questions or do you think that there is some actual follow through on that? No, I definitely see um, follow through on that because um, even if candidates aren't looking to move, they touch base with me, want to know what market activity is going on at present and they sort of turn around and ask me what I feel they would benefit if they moved and we have those conversations very regularly Um, And obviously, with the prices going up, with rent, I think it's 28% has increased this year. It is really having an impact on everyday living. I mean, but no one's giving out 28% pay rises. No one would be almost regardless of the economy. No, they're not, sadly. Um, And it would be fabulous if they were. Um, We do, like when obviously I'm working with um, my clients, I do say to them, you know, we need to be competitive. We need to look at the market and what is happening in the market to get the best salaries I can for my candidates. Um, And sometimes clients are very receptive to that. Um, And at the end of the day, they do want the best talent. So um, 
it, it does work in their favour at times. And that's the question, is it? Is there a bump in, in moving? Are people paying more for new candidates than they are for people existing in the roles? That's correct, yes. Definitely, um, they are paying more money for new candidates. And also where the market is very active now, um, um, we have candidates that have multiple offers. Um, so then we go back and say to the client, you know, this candidate's already been offered this. Um, if you're looking to secure the candidate, what can you offer them? Um, the other thing that also comes into play a lot as well is hybrid working. That's also very um, thought of since COVID. Where you say you've got multiple offers, are there some industries that are, are fighting a bit more for this best talent than others? Yes, definitely. Um, we're still seeing, I mean, the market is still very, very active. Um, last year it was extremely active and it's continued into 2023 um, across financial sectors, tech and digital, um, legal's very busy. I think generally for me across the board, it's still very, very busy on the job market and there's still lots of jobs out there. So what kind of bump are we talking about for people moving? Are people moving for an extra 10%, 20%? What's happening? Well, it depends on the client, um, I'll be honest. Um, some could be a 10% rise, some could be a 25% rise. It really does depend on the client and the candidate and the situation. You know, if we have a candidate that has got multiple offers then and the client really wants to secure that candidate, then we can, you know, obviously get them the best offer we on the table um, if they want to secure that talent. Why do you think... As, you, as someone who speaks to employers as well as employees every day, why do you think employers aren't putting the money on the table to retain the talent, but they will do to attractive? Surely that's a, a false economy. Yeah, I agree. Um, I don't actually know. I, I mean, when I speak to my clients, they always just go, oh, operational costs. And I think at the time, that maybe they just overlook it and think that that um, candidate is going to stay within the role. Um, I think it's not until somebody leaves that they they then say, oh, we'll give you a salary increase or they try to retain the candidate when the candidate goes to them, well, I, I'm handing in my notice. We see that happen a lot, counter offers from um, existing employees. But, you know, constantly I say when clients come to me and say, oh, oh I've got this role, my um, candidate has left. I'm like, well, why didn't you pay them more? And they never really have an answer to that question. What's your gut sense, though? What's your Scooby sense well, on that? For me, I always say to my clients, it's important to retain quality candidates that are already in your business, already trained. It costs you more to recruit new candidates. So from a business practice, it's obvious to retain current staff. And especially if they're well thought of, it's critical to your business. Is it complacency? Is it company policy? I think maybe company policy um, generally and people have ceilings with salary brackets um, and they follow this through but um, I don't always think that is the best business practice because retaining good quality staff obviously is a good business model. At the moment, though, we do seem to, I mean, it, it feels like some of the numbers would, would bear it out, um, have a rising population here. I mean, the do numbers that are out this week show a more than 10% rise in postpaid plans. Those are people who have got residency visas, uh, not, not tourists, if you're, if you're getting a postpaid plan. What kind of uptick are you seeing in the amount of candidates? So easily, I can receive 25 emails a day from the UK of candidates wanting to relocate here. 
we've had a massive influx of candidates wanting to relocate here. Just after COVID, I remember I had clients wanting to relocate candidates from London, and it was the difficult um, thing to do to entice candidates to move to the um, UAE at that time. But now I'm inundated with candidates wanting to relocate to this region. What does that mean then for the power that employers have to hire who they want, pay what they want? So um, we're seeing that if candidates are coming from London and they have no MENA experience, again, it depends on the seniority of the role. Um, Some are getting cheaper talent um, with good, solid London experience. But then if we're talking like C-level, VP level, we're seeing um, UAE clients pay a premium to entice those types of candidates here. Well, thank you so much for joining us going through those numbers and what you are hearing from people on the ground. Sarah Clark is the head of MENA operations for Tiger Recruitment, the company behind that survey suggesting that employees are ready to get up and work if they don't get the money that they need to cope with the rising cost of living in the region. But also some questions about what employers are willing to pay internally. You've been listening to a Dubai Eye 103.8 podcast. To enjoy lots more from Dubai Eye in the United Arab Emirates, just go to DubaiEye1038.com or find them wherever you normally get your podcasts.